Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Sequel Cast. This is your host, Uncle Milkshake. And with me we have a special guest. What's your name, special guest? Hi there, uh, my name is Jersey Jason. Alright, Jason A., how are you doing? And uh, in the Sequel Cast, we're going to be covering different movies, but it has to be a movie that has to be part of a franchise. So it has to have at least one sequel to qualify. We're going to start off... There has to be uh, toys made by Burger King, correct? Is that also not... No, we don't always need toys by Burger King. Sometimes there can be toys by McDonald's as well. So, or any other fast food establishment of your choice. Pickly Wiggly. No, that's not fast food, is it? That's a grocery store. No, <laughs> so. This is terrible. Go ahead. It's only going to so, get worse from here. So we're going to yeah. start off with the uh, first film in the Beverly Hills Cop franchise called, not surprisingly, Beverly Hills Cop. It was released in 1984. It runs 105 minutes long and is rated R, directed by Martin Brest, written by Daniel Petrie Jr., and stars Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, John Ashton, Gilbert Hill, and has music by Harold Faltermeyer. Oh, and has a great cameo, great cameo by Gilbert Godfrey. He's in that movie? The first yeah. one? Who yeah. is he in the first uh, Beverly Hills Cop? I didn't know that. Isn't he in the first one where he plays the, uh, wait, no, that's the sequel. Oh, okay. See in the second one. Se- My bad. That could be. That's all right. The first one does have a cameo from one of the Wayans brothers, who sells the bananas that Eddie Murphy puts in the tailpipe. <laughs> I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Um, let's at least talk about the beginning of the movie. Okay. Do you have any? Uh, when's the last time you've seen the movie, Jason? Um, I actually saw this movie in 1984. Uh, I was two years old at the time. Um, I thought it was a bit banal. Um, <laughs> But no, no, I saw this, I don't even remember when I saw it the first time. Uh, Eddie Murphy had already been a star. This kind of shot him to stardom after, of course, Saturday Night Live. 48 and, Hours was uh, before this one, I think. Yeah. And also, this was one of the biggest hits of the 1984, um, which kind of beat out, what did it get? Um, I know it got over $200 Because the thing was, it actually beat Ghostbusters in the box office, which is one of my favorite movies as well, which whenever you get to that on this podcast, we can talk about that as well. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Yeah, it says on Wikipedia, earned $234 million at the box office, narrowly making it the big set of 1984 ahead of Ghostbusters. Maybe. Regardless, let me do a quick uh, summary of the plot. Eddie Murphy plays Axel Foley, a detective in the Detroit police force, and he's trying to make $5,000 off the side off some illegal cigarette-selling bust. When he gets caught and is chewed out thoroughly, he goes home and meets an old friend of his called Mikey, who's had a criminal past, and he admits he recently moved to Beverly Hills to work with a high school friend of theirs named Jenny, and he stole a bunch of counterfeit German bonds. They could be... Yeah, that's right. And so they go out for a drink, come home, and his friend Mikey gets murdered, but for some reason they leave Eddie Murphy alone. And so Axel Foley takes vacation from the Detroit police force and goes to Beverly Hills to investigate why his friend was killed and who did it. The thing I was surprised about this movie is it takes 20 minutes until they get to Beverly Hills. I don't think that's something they would do in a modern movie. Well, I think what they had to do was they set it up in the beginning of the movie as you said before, it looks like he's just in a cigarette smuggling operation. He's, like, trying to get money. He's communicating with a guy. He actually accuses one of the other crooks of being a cop. But it turns out after the questioning by cops, once he's, like, caught, 
Um, it turns out, of course, we find out that he is a cop, but he's a Detroit police detective. Therefore, how do we get to Beverly Hills Cop as the title? Uh, he has to go and, again, find out why his friend was murdered. I think the reason he's not killed while Mikey is is that they don't know he's a cop. He has no uh, – he doesn't show any identification. But at the same time, he's a witness, so you're right. Why would they – why wouldn't they kill a witness? And the other thing I noticed watching this uh, today to catch up on it, I've seen this a while. I think the first time I saw this, I was in uh, middle school and already knew about Eddie Murphy. But is there's a car chase at the beginning where there's a semi knocking cars all around and cop cars are piling up behind him. But while this intense uh, chasing is going on, on the soundtrack, it plays a song called The Neutron Dance. Oh, God. And it's very... Do you play that? Do you, can, do you have it? Let's play it for the people. This movie's soundtrack was a big deal at the time, and it has, like, wall-to-wall music in the background that was fairly unusual, and you see that really a lot now. Well, you know what? That 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 I guess that's that's really a. It's also a lot of montages, but maybe that's part of the reason for the music. Well, yeah, of course, montage music. But I think really the '80s were known for being, um, I guess, montage heavy, uh, with a lot of music all the time, especially in shots like this where he was doing a lot of car chases. Um, there was a lot of dramatic music that was kind of rock and roll. They used like the beat sections from, like songs uh, for some of the cool action scenes um, where he's sneaking around the house and whatnot. There wasn't much orchestration. It was much more music taken from songs that already existed or were included on the soundtrack. Right, and uh, you know what score there was was done by Harold Faltmeyer, who also did the music for uh, Fletch and Top Gun, and it's very electronic sounding. It all sounds very similar. Oh my god, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, but he's been retired since then, but now he's trying to get back into doing music for uh, movies. Ooh, but you know what's a good song from this movie? Mm. Nasty Girl. Nasty in the Strip Club, yeah. By Vanity Six. They were that group that was made by um, Prince, right? Although watching it now, I don't think the violence is anything that bad. I guess in the language, a little bit of the nudity is why it's rated R. But it seems pretty tame, even though people get shot in the face. It's not as gory as something today it might be. Uh, but watching this, it sort of reminds me of the Beverly, Hill, the Beverly Hills Cop series struggles with the balance between action and comedy. You know what, though, that I see that... Because that's really an Eddie Murphy thing, if you think of it as well. Because huh. there's those times that he, he's goofy, but then he goes like super serious... And that's something that he always played with on um, on uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, if you look at his sketches where he does Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, uh, there was all the thing was like he's funny, and then he, like uh, there's a knock at his door. And he's like, "Who is it?" Or the thing on SNL where he goes, "Kill my landlord, kill my landlord." He's doing a. That's game. more serious. That was funny to the <laughs> audience, but it wasn't where he like did a mug to the uh, to the camera. With his shit eating. $50 million grin. But the parts of the movie that are like this mystery who's investigating who killed his friend are almost played pretty straight, and there's not much humor in the action scenes. And the True. humor comes more with uh, various 
police that they send after Axel Foley because he's not supposed to be investigating the stuff in California because it's out of his jurisdiction. He's actually told by his boss in Detroit um, that he's not supposed to He's not supposed to be investigating it anyway, uh, he, but he asked for the time off to go to California. So he truly isn't. He's not on clock time. He's doing it completely out of his own pocket. Um, what is he? He actually goes to the, what's the hotel? I believe it's the Palm Hotel of Beverly Hills. And he pretends to be a photographer and reporter for Rolling Stone. Who's going to investigate, or who's going to, not investigate, wow, that <laughs> Freudian slip, going to interview Michael Jackson. And he actually, he, they have no rooms left, and he completely does this character and makes them basically think, oh, we're going to get in trouble because he's black. Um, so we better give him a room. And of course they give him an amazing room, and later on, he charges it all to the Beverly Hills <laughs> Police Department. Right, oh, and that was, that, that was quite brilliant. That seems very funny. It it really demonstrates how, with the Beverly Hills Cop movies, part of his character, I guess, part of Eddie Murphy at the time in movies, he would just walk into a room and demand star treatment and get whatever he wanted just by bullshitting. But also, if you think about it as well, Axel Foley, the character, you you're right about that seriousness when he's in the actual investigation. But anytime he's caught out. He has to play a different character, which I guess makes him such a good undercover cop. But he plays his outlandish characters that are loud and brash, not very secretive, um, not very covert at all. Because a lot of times you would think that people would be less likely, and especially in a stuffy environment like Beverly Hills, would pay less attention to somebody who's making a spectacle of themselves. You would think so, but then um, I think the Eddie Murphy's over-the-top the comedy in those scenes kind of works because everyone is so stuffy, everyone else is so flat, it makes him stand out all the more. Mm-hmm. And it's also been these outlandish characters, like... Um, oh, geez, Serge. Really, yeah, uh, Serge, dealing with Serge, um, played by, of course, uh, Balky. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's his name? Bronson Pinchot. Bronson Pinchot, thank you. Uh, wow, I haven't thought about that for a while. Um, but him playing serious, and his character also becomes more outlandish as the movies continue. Um, well, it's very much it, a sort of 80s gay stereotype to be as camp as possible, although you still see that in stuff now. I don't know. It's... I think it was more demure in the first movie. Get the fuck out of here. I cannot get the fuck out of here. Or he's making him an espresso, and he's like, I can do it with a little lemon twist in the back. Just the way he says twist. It's funny in a way my delivery wasn't. Ahmed. Ahmed Foley. Ahmed. <laughs> Axel. Axel. Thank you, Serge. Also, there are other characters that are serious in the movie. Um, what's the name of the friend that, she, that he goes out to uh, seeing... The woman that manages the art gallery that his friend used to work at before he got killed, her name is Jenny Summers. That's and right. He goes, is played they all up together. By Lisa Ailbacher. Oh. And she's okay. She has the 80s frizzy hair. It doesn't really have a whole lot to do. She helps Axel investigate. 
And I think the plot is frankly a little bit too complicated for this kind of a movie. I mean, he looks to try and find the counterfeit uh, German bonds, and he well, finds the Beverly Hills cops. What do you mean? Well, he has to elude them. He has to. Oh, oh right, no. He has to appear like he's just vacationing. He has to lose them in traffic. He has to make sure that he's not followed, and he can't be caught doing anything illegal because then, of course, if he's caught, he has like the one time he goes to Maitland, uh, he actually goes to Victor Maitland's office and talks to Maitland, telling him that he's going to catch him, that he's going to hunt him down and find out what he's doing and why Mikey had to die. He then gets thrown out of a window. He gets thrown through a window in the office on the first floor, and the cops pick him up, and he is charged with um, running through the window and making um, uh, the actual charge, I believe. He's charged with a concealed weapon and disturbance of the peace. Yeah, because he doesn't he doesn't identify himself as a cop, which is how he then becomes on the Beverly Hills attention. But the thing so, I love is in this movie is he's investigating about this counterfeit bonds, and of course they manage to find cocaine, and cocaine seems to be at the center of any '80s cop movie. It always ends up the bad guys trying to smuggle cocaine one way or the other. Is that true? Yes. What happens is he's investigating the warehouse where he saw these uh, German bonds were shipped to, and he sees coffee grounds. And it, it turns out he happens to know that coffee grounds were placed on top of cocaine shipments to throw the scent off for the dogs. But no, I mean about the cocaine. I'd like to see a chart to that fact, Matt. Oh, uh, a lot of 80s and 90s police movies have bad guys dealing with cocaine in some form, whether it's kindergarten cop or Beverly Hills Cop, or I can't think of anything else, but cocaine was widely... But I bet there are a lot. You, you're probably right on that. But like I said, to make a chart. But again, let's let's talk a little bit about the cops. Um, let's talk about Judge Reinhold. Yeah, you have Judge Reinhold and John Ashton. Judge Reinhold plays uh, Billy Rosewood, who is just weird. Well, he's young. He's younger he's than the young. other. The other detective is Detective Sergeant John Taggart, who's a bit pudgy. It's kind of – it's basically Jake and the Fat Man, where one's kind of roly-poly, the other's young and inexperienced but skinny. So – and, of course, they're they're stuck in the Beverly Hills mode because everything is done very by the book. And, of course, that plays totally against Detective Axel Foley, who plays things uh, fast and loose. And the thing with Judge Reinhold is he's so sincere, there's a part where they're – trying to camp out near the hotel to follow Axel Foley around. And Axel Foley orders them a uh, light supper. And they go and deliver curbside to this car, like a shrimp salad sandwich and a steak. And John Taggart is so angry and upset. It's like, what? We're not going to take this. But Billy Rosewood is so accepting. It's like, well, this is great. Can I have extra mayonnaise? The sandwich tastes delicious. Seems so but of course, getting a meal. Of course, though, that was meant as a, as a distraction, because it does get them off his back. They don't realize that they're that he's basically behind their car uh, <laughs> with the banana, um, and they're able their car, of course, with a banana in the tailpipe. I don't know if this has been done on MythBusters, but uh, their car is unable to go because it has an obstruction on the tailpipe. So after that, like. It's seen as a distraction. They actually get in trouble because they lose Foley. 
Uh, and during this time, he's actually able to break into a customs house. And he's, he tries to find the barrier bonds. He actually gets a cigarette from a cop, or from a rent-a-cop, I should say. And the cop's like, well, you're not supposed to be in here. And he asks, uh, do you have a light? And the guy's like, okay. And he lights the cigarette, and he's like, who's your manager? And the guy's like, what? I need to see your manager right now. And he basically gets them to look at all the paperwork with him because they think that he's some kind of inspector who's running a, I guess, inquiry to see how their defenses were, to see how their security was. So, of course, by breaking their security and then being caught, he's able to get them to think (laughs) that he works for the uh, customs house. But through it, he's able to find that there there are certain boxes that have come through customs that don't get searched before being taken elsewhere. And thus, they're able to get certain things in illegally, such as cocaine, barrier bombs, all that fun stuff. Probably illegal DVDs. Oh, wait, 1984, never mind. But then at the same time, he then the next night, though, he does talk to both detectives, telling them, no, I meant that from my sincere, that was from the bottom of my heart. I know you guys got in trouble, but that food, that meant something. I know what it's like to do stakeouts. And then he actually goes with them. To, of course, my favorite part of the movie, takes them to go to a, a club, and they don't realize that it's a strip club until I think they're inside. Is that correct? Yeah, Eddie Murphy tells them they're going to a conservative restaurant, and they go into the strip club, looks like a strip <laughs> club from any 80s movie, a lot of red lights everywhere. The song Nasty Girl, as you were talking about earlier, is playing, and as they're in there, two people come through the door that looks like they might cause some trouble. So this is a, that's aside from the main story. But the thing we haven't mentioned yet is the bad guy of the piece. Is oh, Victor Payton. Yeah, it's played by Stephen Burkhoff. And he actually starred in a James Bond movie called Octopussy. But the way he talks is very much like a Bond villain, and he's very menacing, but doesn't really get into much uh, combat, except at the end. Yes, but let's, let's wait on that. That's true. It seems like... Well, in a lot of movies, you always have the the villain gets to... All he does is sit at tables and have other guys throw him out the window or out the door or punch him. Mm-hmm. Very true. Uh, and then he also, of course, has his uh, head of security. The... His name oh, is, is Zach, first... and he's played by Jonathan Banks. But he has this lazy eye. He was in a bunch of 80s movies. Which is in 48 Hours, he plays a character who is a friend of the lead and is killed by the villain. That's funny. So he plays the same character in both movies, pretty much. You always have an underling. A lot of the movies, you, of course, get to have somewhere where the guy gets to basically tell you his whole plan or talk to the hero instead of just killing the hero then. But I think also in a lot of 80s movies, you had villains who didn't have to talk a lot. In 48 Hours... The bad guys in that are two basic bikers. They're not the smartest tools in the shed, but they do have a plan. Movies like Die Hard, you have the main villain who goes with the hero, and the hero thinks that he's just a normal guy until the end he figures out. We as the audience already know that he's the bad guy. And again, we in this in this movie, we know that he's the bad guy. Because it'd be weird if, if he came to Beverly Hills and the guy who Maitland... It would be weird if Maitland didn't turn out to be the villain. What if it was Jenny? Wouldn't that be weird? That would be weird if it was his high school friend, Jenny. 
that would have been a more interesting twist, maybe. I mean, of course, the bad guy is the only guy with a British accent in all of Beverly Hills <laughs> with bodyguards. Um, if the guy's got an accent, watch out. Or if he has a goatee or any facial hair, he's up to no good unless he's Tom Selleck. Jerry Bruckheimer claimed that the part of Axel Foley was first offered to Mickey Rourke. It was also offered to uh, Sylvester Stallone. Wow. And I think it would have been more of a straight-up uh, action movie. Absolutely, it would have been, that been the case. A yes. hard-edged screenplay. And Stallone turned down Beverly Hills Cop to do Rhinestone with Dolly Parton. Oh. <laughs> it says there also, um, he went on to use this version of the film uh, for the basis of his movie Cobra. Anyway, they go back to the police station, and what happens there is Axel Foley tries to make it like the police did everything, and Axel Foley did nothing. Super cops. He calls them super cops. And it seems to be a good story, but then they can, the police confess and say, no, actually, Axel Foley did all this. So as a result, John Dreidhold and John Ashton are assigned off the case, and you get two more detectives assigned to the case to chase Axel Foley around town, which they managed to do and not really succeed. I'm not sure why you needed two other sets of cops to do basically the same kind of part. Well, no, no, it was, it was more of the punishment. It was getting Tagger and putting them somewhere, uh, what was it, road duty or traffic duty, right. and basically punishing them, putting somebody else that they may have thought were more competent. And then, of course, what does Axel Foley do? Uh, he stops at a green light while they're behind him. The second it turns red, he guns it across traffic. The other car with the cops in it is not able to get through as two other cars come and crash from the front and the back of the cop car. Very classic 80s move. I've seen that exact same stunt in a few other movies that I cannot name. So at this point, we're getting near the end of the movie. They go to a few different warehouses and end up back at... Axel does find the coffee grounds. He goes back to the police chief, uh, Stephen Elliott, as police chief Hubbard. Um, and he, or, no, no, no. Was it Ronnie Cox's the lieutenant? Ronnie Cox was the lieutenant. Yes, that's right. Uh, Bogomil. He basically tells Axel, tell me what you got. Axel tells him about the coughing rounds and the, uh, the barrier bombs. It's enough, he doesn't have enough proof, so he has to go find, I guess, the big crime, which is also weapon smuggling, as well as cocaine. Um, what is it? After Bogomil basically says, I can't do anything more, and he's also then interrupted by his chief, uh, play, uh, Chief Hubbard, played by Stephen Elliott. Um, yeah, uh, but he's interrupted, and he's almost, it almost stops there as Hubbard demands that, uh, that Axel Foley is driven to the state line, or is driven to the airport or to the straight, state line? He's driven to the uh, city limits. He's able that to he convince Billy Rosewood to let him have one last shot. And of course, Rosewood being so, I guess, innocent at the time and being so gullible allows Axel to take him to a warehouse. But at the same time, Jenny Summers is being taken from the art gallery by Maitland to that same warehouse where she is being used as not bait. What would, you, what would you call that? I'd call it bait, because that's what it was. 
But no, she wasn't the bait. She was basically intimidation. Using her to threaten Axel. God forbid he lose another friend. What do you think that, that drives in his spirit? Do you think what does that do to the character development? I think that makes Axel a bit more violent at the end of the movie. I mean, mm-hmm. while, while there's action in the movie up to this point, you don't have Axel Foley fire a gun until the last uh, ten minutes where they're getting shot at by machine gun fire at Victor Maitland's mansion. Well, that's true. He does. He takes her back to his house, this beautiful mansion that Axel had been casing before. And, of course, Billy, he's able to see that uh, the girl's kidnapped and is able to get the drop on the villains to get Axel back in the car so that they can drive to Maitland's house. And then they have other, they have a few other police, I guess, join them. Tiger shows up, and some more backup police come up near the end, but it's really a big action extravaganza as a bunch of Maitland's troops are armed with machine guns, a lot of things exploding, a pretty exciting sequence. But really, yeah, you're right. After the, uh, after the kidnapping of Jenny, the movie does become serious, except for you still have Taggart and Rosewood's relationship. When they're trying to get over the wall, right, it's still right. kind of funny, even though you know that Axel Foley, Eddie Murphy, is being completely serious, because this is serious police work, as he breaks into Maitland's house and has to then make his way through an entire garden of guards and through a house where he doesn't know where what the actual specs of the house are or what firepower these people have. But at the same time, you have Taggart and Rosewood drawing fire, <laughs> which is great because <laughs> Rosewood actually yells to the bodyguards with machine guns to drop their weapons because, of course, Beverly Hills Police Department, he actually flashes his badge and almost gets his hand shot off. And Taggart says the lines, if you ever do that again, I'll shoot you myself. <laughs> but then, of course, all the other cops, uh, they hear on the 911, cops shot, uh, uh, shots fired at this address, and, of course, they figure out it's Maitland's address. And the uh, lieutenant, Bogomil, he actually winds up coming to the rescue himself after Axel takes out one of the bodyguards. Once Axel gets inside, it's pretty much one-to-one with Axel in there by himself, first taking out Zach, the guy that killed his friend Mikey, and then trying to take out Victor Maitland. And of course, Maitland's got Jenny. Yes. And at the end of the actual move, at the end of the firefight, it's not... Who fires the first shot? What happens is Eddie Murphy shoots the bodyguard, Zach, down, and he goes to look at the body. He's kind of proud of himself, and all of a sudden he gets shot in the shoulder by Maitland. But he's able to get away. Yeah. So Axel Foley tries to catch up to him and gets down on his knees and starts firing. At the same time, Ronnie Cox, the police chief, runs in and starts firing behind Axel Foley, and the two of them shoot about a dozen bullets. So both Bogomil and Foley wind up doing a hail of fire into Maitland. And that really, like, if you think about it, that's kind of one of the more violent Scenes. It's really the only big shootout thing. There's lots of shootouts, but no connections. Mikey's death, not as violent as um, Maitland. Well, he gets shot point blank, but you don't see the blood. I guess you're right. It's not quite as violent. And even Zach, what was? Where was Zach shot? Was he shot in the head? I thought it was. A, I thought it was a clear headshot. 
It might have been a headshot. I just saw this movie a few hours ago. I can't even remember. I don't know. But that's sad because I can imagine. I can completely imagine him, Jonathan Banks, in those horrible '80s suits. And I know the hallway scene, and I can't remember where he shot. The thing that strikes me strange <laughs> about this movie is, uh, so Jenny is the girl that he tries to save, but he never sleeps with her during the movie, and I thought that was sort of. Strange. Oh God, no, no, because they were they were childhood friends. They're not children anymore. That's true. But I, I think there might have been more of her and Mikey and Axel being more like siblings than... And he ever... just didn't want to lose another friend. True. Right? It's more of that. Yeah, I don't ever think it was about love. It, it never seemed... Also, it never seemed like she was that interested in him in that way. She seemed to be treating him as well as an older brother. Again, in this movie, there isn't much implied sexuality. Now, she doesn't come back for the sequels, does she? (gasps) Yes, she does. Really? She's in the second one? She's in the sequel. She's in the second one. She's in for like like two minutes. Oh, okay. I guess we'll talk about that. But she's in the second movie. Next episode. One of my closing questions will be, I mentioned earlier I thought action and comedy were things that Beverly Hills Cop movies always tended to juggle. Would you Mm -hmm. say the first one is the most successful in that respect, or do you think the second one is better... Is a better movie as far because they amp up the slickness and the action over the top quality or do you have a favorite movie out of the Beverly Hills Cup trilogy is what I'm trying to say you know what I'm going to say I like the first one the second one I like the crime but I don't like all the performances and I think it, the, some of the bad guy performances are very schlocky this I think was more successful because it was the first time it had been attempted to do this kind of funny cop transported kind of idea you see something similar later with, like, Rush Hour uses a similar fish out of... Absolutely. But also look at how Axel Foley is able to take control of any environment that he's in. And the way that he does that a lot is his comedy. I think that's one thing that really makes Axel Foley stand out in these kind of buddy cop... This isn't even really a buddy cop movie... But it's, it's that Not comedic- the first one, no, because it's just him by himself doing most of the investigation. Well, no, wait, wait, wait. Are you saying the second one is a buddy cop movie? You're right in as much as Axel Foley is the lead character and is always in charge of the investigation. But I think you see a lot more interplay between Axel Foley and Billy Rosewood in the second one in particular. Very true. But he never has a companion throughout the whole thing. Not so much on the third movie, though. Right. Third movie is another solo game. But you know what? You can already see, like, you see the style change. Was it even the third? Did Jerry Bruckheimer do all three? He did the first two. Wow. Okay, that, you know, that, that explains a lot. The producer did the first two, so. All right, any other final comments you want to say on Beverly Hills Cop? Hmm. I like that he gets to walk away with, what is it? I think he walks away with five in total. Uh, shower robes in his luggage from the Palm Hotel, and also... He has three, then he gives one apiece to uh, Taggart and Rosewood as parting yes. gifts. As a, that's, that's funny as heck. Uh, and of course that he charges it all to uh, the Palm. Or he charges it all to the Beverly Hills cop. Uh, Beverly Hills Police Department, <laughs> sorry. Edit that all out, because that makes okay. no sense. Not the Beverly Hills cop department. Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills Police Department. Again, I think that this movie really was out of left field. People weren't expecting a movie like this. I think it really played well. It did very well. 
uh, for audiences because it was something new and clever, and it had a star. Um, it definitely had a star, and I guess that's why I don't think the other two are as successful because they're kind of after you see the first one, how do you not make that character predictable? Even if you do change the crime and the players, how do you not make that character predictable? And in the later movies, as uh, we'll talk about later, the first movie, a big source of the comedy, is Fish Out of Water. This cop from Detroit playing to Beverly Hills and all the zaniness that ensues. The other movies don't really change the location that much. You still have Eddie Murphy in California. All right, well, thanks for joining us for the first episode of SequelCast. Be sure to check out the website at www.sequelcast.com. I'm Uncle Milkshake. And I'm Jersey Jason. And we'll see you next time on SequelCast for Beverly Hills Cop 2.